here to there, making change in a unpredictable world. Side B. Listening is a creative act, and it can be an act of love. To pay attention changes us and changes the object of our attention. Our attitude toward an event contributes to what the event becomes. We are a part of the equation. That comes from Anne Bogart's book. And then you act, making art in an unpredictable world. Many years ago, on a very cold Wednesday night in February, minus 40 outside, I found myself in the gods of a half-empty Winnipeg arena. I was there with a handful of pals to take in a hockey game between the Winnipeg Jets and the Chicago Blackhawks. The Jets and Hawks at this time were in the Campbell Conference, buried in something called the Smythe Division. It was a division of the adequate, with much finer teams playing elsewhere in the league, a million miles from the Smythe. It was a middling pack of talent, with a sprinkling of A-listers on each squad. The Jets' top flight included a centerman by the name of Dale Howarchuk. Everybody called him Duck. They had a decent defenseman, a bit of a beast, named Dave Babbage. On the Hawk side, they had plenty of goons, but they were also graced with the francophone finesse of center Denny Savard, the grit and soft hands of the power forward Al Secord, and the great Tony Espo Esposito in the net. Now, the teams in the Smythe had... I think, resigned themselves to being a very solid okay. Nobody in the division was kidding themselves, expecting that they were going to win the cup or anything. But they were being paid, so they did the best they could. And so did we in the audience. The tickets we'd purchased were in the cheap, obstructed seats up at the top of the arena, and it cost us less than 20 bucks. But the Winnipeg Arena was a warm place to have a cold beer on a cold night and eat a couple of hot dogs and have a decent chat about whatever was sticking in our craws. The game got underway, and it was immediately pedestrian. Lots of dipsy-doodling. A perfect example of nowhere to go and all day to get there hockey. Even the goons were being decent. So we went for more beer and stood by the bar and talked about the summer. Not that anybody really cared, but the score was 0-0 at the end of the first period, which pretty much summed up the game and the night thus far. But everything changed early in the second period. Now, it had started as the first had ended. It was a classic ho-hum. But there was a moment, a single moment, that sparked a very different experience for everybody under that roof. It would require other ingredients to become epic, but it surely needed that spark to get the process going. The catalyst was a piece of happenstance, really, a fluke. One of the very large Blackhawk players tripped over his own stick, lost control, and accidentally wound up plowing into Duck, driving him into the boards. He dropped as the proverbial stone and lay on the ice not moving, a confused posse of players and refs around him wondering what had just happened. A skinny manager in a jet's toque slid across the ice on his hush puppies to see if the Duck was still alive. Now, the confusion on the ice spread from the players and up into the stands, and I'm sure it perplexed the ownership, too. I mean, really, what had just gone on? That hit had come out of nowhere. It was from another galaxy, from another sort of game where things mattered, where it was life and death. This wasn't adding up. Now, the joint was still pretty quiet, though there was a low rumbling starting to happen. As Duck managed to drag his poor self from the ice 
and with the aid of the trainer and the hush puppies, he eventually got to the bench, and after some smelling salts and a squirt of water, appeared good to go. And in those moments of smelling salts and squirts of water, the entire assembly began to embrace a similar thought, I think. All of the 11,000 citizens in the stands and the 40-odd hockey players on the bench and even the refs in ownership, we all arrived at the same conclusion that what had just taken place had changed everything. All of a sudden there was urgency. Duck! Their leader, their captain, had been mightily abused, and reparations were due. The game turned into a battle of the fittest, the wiliest, the quickest, the dirtiest, the most desperate. We were suddenly involved in something that mattered. We were in the midst of an experience. We were no longer spectators. We had become complicit. We'd become participants. We rose and fell with every shot, hit, save, deke, and pass— it was like we were at the Canada-Russia Summit Series Game 8. The goalers, not to be left out, were turning in stellar performances. Tony Espo Esposito did the splits, picked pucks out of the air like a frog on a frond, licks bugs from space at supper time. Eddie Staniowski, for the Jets, not to be outmatched, was as nimble as a cat. This was turning into a fight to the finish, and by the end of the second period, the score was at a very intense one-to-one. The buzz in the building was filled with enough energy to light the entire north end of the peg. We were a family of maniacal believers involved in an athletic version of Woodstock. People went primal, screaming in the hallways like the ancient ones. The washrooms were packed with men howling like they'd howled at birth. We were at a thing, and we were a part of that thing. I am drawn to the theater to lean forward into an event, Anne Bogart writes in her book to participate in it. This need to participate, to lean forward, is one of the basic ingredients that make the theater experience unique. When you lean forward, you become an active participant, and this moment engenders a kind of ownership on the part of the audience. And so it was with the theater of hockey on that winter Wednesday night in Winnipeg, Manitoba. We had assumed part ownership of the experience, and we leaned in like the trees forced over in a hurricane. The third period got underway, and the intensity climbed to new heights. There were mad dashes and and great hits and beautiful pinpoint passing, scintillating snabs by the goalers. The whole place was going bananas when the PA announcer shouted, Last minute of play in the third period. The joint went up. We had 60 seconds to set this thing right. People were jumping up and down, and the players like wild horses. They, They puffed and snorted and spit and jumped over the boards as warriors came whipping back to the bench, completely out of gas, but with enough air to shout their comrades on. I thought it was going to explode. And then, as if that wasn't enough, a hawk made a mistake. He iced the puck. A linesman blew the whistle. The clock read four seconds. There was only four seconds left in the experience, but because of the icing, the face-off would come all the way back down to the Chicago end. There was to be one last chance to win the game for the home side. Everybody took a deep breath and swallowed, wiped their sweaty palms on the arse of their jeans. The players gathered at the bench, some with dried blood on their face, others with blackened eyes, and many with hastily stitched stitches. The ref, he blew the whistle to let everybody know the time was nigh. The players slowly started to make their way toward the dot to the left of Espo. The building was like a church, silent in anticipation, everyone on the edge of their pew. It was so still you could hear the swish of the skate blades on the ice, the clack of the sticks. Espo tapped the inside of his trapper with his goal stick. You could hear the leather smack all the way up into the gods where we were. 
The forwards jostled at the edge of the circle, but a look from the ref settled them down, and while they went still, they didn't lose a single volt of energy. They were ready to lunge, prepared to do almost anything, whatever it took. The defensemen for the Hawks took up their posts, ready to take a head or two off its neck if need be. The Jets' defense had most of the room of all the players back at the point. They were separated by a little bit of distance, and they both eyed where they'd rifle the puck if they got a chance. Dave Babbage, the beast, was one of those defensemen. So, Duck and Denny Savard, the two captains, the two centers, each did a tight little ringer around the circle, tapping the forwards on their shins, taking a look back at their defensemen. Then they both came forward, as if in a ballet, to the dot and hunkered low, their helmets almost touching skulltop to skulltop. The sculpt was now complete, and nobody moved. But... It wouldn't be for long. Everyone knew we were at the very best theater event in town. The tension, the conflict, the protagonist and the agonist wor antagonist worthy foes, and the outcome of the play was still uncertain. This was D-R-A-M-A -A, drama. The linesman held the puck six inches above the centerman's sticks, sticks that were pressed into the ice and ready to rise up, reach in and claw the puck back to a mate, to someone who could win or save the game. The 11,000 people in the arena were all standing, leaning into the action. You could have heard a baby sneeze. It was so tense and quiet. Then, as if in slow motion, but not, the puck dropped from the linesman's hand and floated toward Savard and Duck. They jammed their sticks into the dot, and the puck bounced Duck's way. The four seconds went to three. Duck somehow, with the cool of James Dean, manipulated the puck between the skates of a jet forward as he fought to keep the hawk forward from getting his stick to the ice to deflect it. The puck slid like it was on a wire to Dave Babbage. Two seconds on the clock. Dave took one quick stride to his left, trying desperately to find a lane to the net to get off his shot that wouldn't be blocked by a hawk defenseman. Bodies were flying everywhere, but Dave remained cool, cocked his stick, and with the strength of Thor, swiped it down where it made contact with the rubber. And with one second on the clock, the puck flew like a bullet heading to the top shelf of the left corner. Espo stretched as far as he could, his glove extended, reaching for the puck, and he just missed it as the buzzer sounded, and the puck punched the twine at the back of the net and then was spit back onto the field of battle, where it rolled slowly, finally stopping at the edge of the circle on its side. There was a single moment of silence. Time enough to think one of the following three questions, but not all three. What just happened? Did that just happen? Did he just score and win the game? Then the joint erupted. People were hugging, back slaps all around. People were shaking hands with strangers. Kids were crying. The players looked like they just won the Stanley Cup. We had all been participants in one for the ages. And the reason I relate this event is to ask you a question. If 11,000 people and 40 hockey players can bring this sort of focus to a situation on a Wednesday night in February in Winnipeg, Manitoba, what else can 11,000 citizens and 40 hockey players do? By changing a couple of words in the Ann Bogart quote, it's possible the answer comes to these questions. I am drawn to the world, she writes, to lean forward into the event, to participate in it. This need to participate, to lean forward, is one of the basic ingredients that make the life experience unique. When you lean forward, you become an active participant, and this moment engenders a kind of ownership on the part of the citizenry.
We can participate more meaningfully in our democracy. We can lean into the events of our lives, events that include climate action, inequity, and supporting each other in the pandemic. And if we can do that, I think we can reach another understanding of what it means to be alive, what it means to participate, and what it means to respect our one and only home and all of the other beings on it.